I don't know if I was fatigued or I was excited, but it was the easiest career decision I ever made in my life. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. Today, we're here with Karen Nortman. How are you? I am doing terrific. Thanks for having me on Hawk Talk. No, yeah. Thank you for being here. So at this point, you've just announced you're going to be bringing a professional women's soccer team to Los Angeles. You also announced yesterday that you're now the managing partner of Upfront Ventures. Is that the right title? Co-managing partner. Co-managing partner. Yes. And with Mark Suster, who has been running the firm for some time. And Upfront, I don't know if statistically it's actually true, but basically the most prominent venture fund in Los Angeles. Like, you guys, I don't know if it's quite the biggest or it is the biggest. I don't know where the line gets drawn. The largest early stage fund in Southern California and the oldest. So we've been around for nearly 25 years and have a little bit over $2 billion under management. Awesome. And so going to make an assumption, were you at like four years old, like running your own shark tank out of your bedroom where you were having people pitch you and deciding where you're going to put your money? Is that how this all started? You had a dream of being a venture capitalist from the beginning? A hundred (laughs) percent. No, absolutely not. And actually one of the things I've become pretty passionate about is just kind of role modeling the fact that there may not be a role model for your path and understanding that the origin story is sort of always in the process of being built. So no, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but the first job I remember wanting to have was an anesthesiologist. I wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And awesome. the reason is, so I, there was no one in business in my family. And yeah, uh, so take me back, like, wh- where were you born? What, what did your parents do? I would love to hear that part of it. Yes, yeah, so I was born actually in North Carolina. And I lived there until I was two. So I'm still a Duke fan. And like Ritz and and I sometimes in Two Truths and a Lie tell people that my full name is Carolina. But now if you ever play with me, you will know that that is my lie. It is not Carolina. It is Kara. My dad was doing his residency or his fellowship at Duke. And so my mom was originally from LA. She grew up in Van Nuys. She went to Grant High. I have a big extended family here. So they moved back when I was two years old. And then I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I'm a Valley girl, Eric. <laughs> and what kind of doctor was your dad? So my dad still is a nephrologist, so a kidney doctor and an internist. Mm-hmm. And my mom was a teacher of the deaf. So I, and then my grandparents, oh. my grandfather was a doctor, my grandmother, who maybe we'll get to, my grandmothers were pretty important figures in my life. One of them was a homemaker, but one of them was one of the first women to get a degree in math and a statistician and a kind of became kind of a world famous demographer. But I would say my whole, no one in my family was in business. Everyone was, you know, kind of in service, in a services business. And my dad was a mini entrepreneur. And I, I definitely saw him you know, kind of go through ups and downs and leave to start his own practice after he sold it and was unhappy having sold it. And he's, you know, a 74 year old doctor at Cedar sinai who is still, you know, a mentor role model along with my mom. Oh. But there was no role modeling of business at all in my family. And so at what point did you decide on anesthesiology? When did that come up? <laughs> it was my dream as a young child. I know, uh, you know, so I, I'm very close to both my parents. My dad is a bit of a workaholic, which I may resemble. And he would come home from work very late. So he was one of those dads who would drive three hours to watch 30 minutes of a soccer game I was playing, but but was never home for dinner and would regularly come from home to the hospital at 10 p.m. And so I started asking people, what is a doctor job, which is what I thought I wanted to be, that will get me home early someday? And they said, no office hours. 
hours. Anesthesiology, you just need a lot of band-aids. So I ran around telling people <laughs> that I wanted to be this job and I was stockpiling band-aids and people thought it was cute. So I probably just went with it. And how old were you? I don't really remember, but I was probably like, I probably wasn't four. I was probably like seven or eight. <laughs> That's awesome. And so were you one of those kids that always had something going on as a child? Like, were you starting businesses or were you trying to find ways to make money? Was that part of? Yeah, I'm not sure I would say that. I know that's supposed to be the heritage. I mean, I was. Well, and that's the interesting part is I, <laughs> if I've learned anything in a few of these, there's no like consistency. Everybody seems to have a different path. I mean, honestly, my, I, I'm very, I'm also very close with my two siblings. My brother, Greg Nortman is two years younger than me. And my sister, Kim Nortman is six years younger. They probably had more entrepreneurial instincts. And actually my sister was an indentured servitude for some of them, unfortunately, uh, to my brother than I did. I mean, I remember my brother, you know, starting businesses all the time. I mean, he started a safety pin bracelet business. At one point in time, we, he started carving sticks and selling them as fossils. I mean, so I think he made like a thousand dollars on safety pin bracelets where the cost of goods was like a dollar safety pins and little beads. And he would pay my sister 50 cents or something to make them and sell them for $30. So maybe I was meant to be the venture capitalist. <laughs> you got to observe entrepreneurs your entire childhood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I mean, we all ended up in entrepreneurial roles, but I think yeah. we probably had different risk profiles and paths to get there. And candidly, I think I was probably too much of a first child, want to please everyone, you know, achiever, do what was expected of me person. And it was only in my mid thirties that that broke down. And I finally just <laughs> became the true entrepreneurial version of myself. Hopefully I am today. So how did that play out in that sense? Like what was, as you say, expected of you, like what, what did you do through high school? Where did, what did you go to undergrad for that set of things? Yeah, I worked really hard in high school, in a lot of ways, probably harder than I did in college. So I went to a school here in LA that many people probably heard of called Harvard Westlake. And before that, it was called Westlake. I do think I looking back in time, going to an all girls school from the, you know, from seventh to 10th grade had a really big impact on me. And in fact, a lot of the women that I met in that time and the men, but really, I realize now I look up to them as my original mentor. So there's, you know, one woman, for example, Jessica Yellen, who was our student body president when I was in seventh or eighth grade, she went on to become the CNN correspondent to the White House. You know, you kind of revere these people when you're growing up and, are, are, you know, put them on a pedestal, even though I'm about six inches taller than her. I, I definitely looked up to her. And so when we reconnected later in life, she was coming back to LA. She's now started, you know, like a very prominent kind of, she basically quit CNN to start a modern form of factual news heavily for women on Instagram. And she has hundreds of thousands of followers and we become, you know, this is just an example. We become friends, but there's people like that, that I looked up to from a young age. And, you know, I think LA also just has a very entrepreneurial community in general. My student body president, once we merged was a guy named Spencer Raskoff who went on yeah. to start Zillow. And one of my, like my best guy friend was a guy named Jared Gruz, who's now the number two at Snap. And I think you actually have that story amongst many of the public and private schools in LA, not always in tech. I mean, I think that's changed and evolved in the last five or 10 years. But I think I was sort of just focused on working hard and getting good grades. And I was kind of like doing what I saw role modeled in my life. So I wanted to get into a terrific college. I wanted to go somewhere different than LA. And when I went to college, what I thought I would be at the time was 
a bioengineering patent lawyer. That was my dream. So I got to know, how did that come up? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great industry, to be real, but curious. Well, this shows my risk aversion. I loved biology and science. Mm-hmm. I had come to the conclusion at that point that I wasn't sure I wanted to be a doctor. My dad's a wonderful guy, but has a little bit of a curmudgeon flair to it. And I think he had talked me out of it. And the only other profession I really knew was like, you know, being a lawyer or a teacher or, you know, an economist or something. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll be a lawyer that does biology. And so I went to college and I'd done well in, you know, biology and physics. And where'd you go? I went to Princeton. I did my undergrad at Princeton. And then honestly, the short version of the story is I was terrible at chemistry and specifically titrating. It spilled the acid all over my sweaters and like they were deteriorating. And I think actually I got there and I realized I have absolutely no idea what I want to do. I had no idea what I wanted to major in. And it was kind of a relief to just say, you know what? I have no clue. And maybe I'll figure it out by the time I graduated. But I was sort of liberated, I think, once I got there to figure things out and be open to new paths. When I think, yeah, that's such a relief feeling when you're very type A and need to have things very like ready and go and you have a whole plan and then you're just kind of like the acceptance of, you know, it's okay to spend a couple of years or a few years in college figuring it out and learning and not having a plan. Totally. I mean, honestly, when I talk to kids at some of these intense high schools now, I say to them, the most important thing you can do is learn how to fail and take risk (laughs) as early as you possibly can because everything you've been trained to this point is how to get positive affirmation from other people. Yep. And that is the shortest path to not figuring out what your kind of flow zone is. Yep. And I think because college was set up as this thing, this accomplishment unto itself, that once I got there, I kind of let loose. I mean, I literally, I don't know that I went to class very often freshman year. I signed Guilty up as well. <laughs> for every club. I mean, I joke around. I think I signed up for both the conservative and the liberal debate society, the environmental club. I mean, like every club, I signed up for three sports and played sports in high school, none of which I was good enough to play in college. So I signed up for all these random East Coast sports. I was on the ski team, the crew team and the rugby team. for Rugby. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, it turns out I didn't want my nose broken. So that one didn't stick. That's awesome. And so getting through college, did, when did you feel like you graduated with that sort of decisiveness of like, okay, now I know what I want to do? Or did you come out clear or was it still pretty open? No, I kind of fell into what I did, to be totally honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did it with conviction. So I fell with conviction. But <laughs> I think, you know, being in college at that time, you just, it was the era in which all of these kind of big companies and consulting firms and banking firms would come recruit. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate the college I went to didn't have any pre-professional major. So I didn't really understand, for example, the difference between economics and finance. There was not a finance course I could take, right? Everything was theory and, you know, all this stuff, which I now really, really appreciate because it taught me how to think, took me away from a specific professional goal. But honestly, my career choice coming out of college was I literally, my decision came down to deciding to go work for Morgan Stanley as an analyst or Ralph Nader in his nonprofit. It wasn't like Morgan Stanley or, you know, McKinsey or Montgomery securities, which was the big tech bank at the time, it was like two incredibly different things. And in a lot of ways, I'm very happy I made the choice I did because I built some real skills. But I think it reflects kind of the two passions, you know, of my life. And to be clear, he wasn't a third party candidate at the time. He was a consumer protection guy. So just to make sure I'm very happy to talk yeah. about politics, but I just want to be clear about that. I'm not about taking the vote away from main candidates. And so is, which one did you go to, Morgan Stanley or Ralph Nader? Oh, I went to Morgan Stanley. You did? Uh, cool. 
And I landed in the most conservative, intense, had to wear a skirt suit every day, you know, ripping four pairs of nylons every morning I got dressed. I mean, kind of group at Morgan Stanley, like the most, I don't know, what is it called? Blue shoed, white shoed, like the most finance of finance groups at Morgan yeah. Stanley. It was their merchant banking group and was like chained to a desk for two years where I learned a ton. <laughs> and so it was that in New York? That was in New York. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sixth Avenue and uh, 48th Street, New York City. Nice. There you go, Midtown. And so I'm curious what through that went through your head where you go from anesthesiologist to doctor in general to, you know, patent attorney on the biomedical side to, okay, I'm going to go into finance. Like I understand that they were recruiting, but I still, I'm sure there was a decision in that part of it. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I would say is I think when I kind of gave up feeling like I needed to have a specific stated professional path, probably around my sophomore year is when mm -hmm. I figured that out, when I quit the science track, right? I realized I did not want to do organic chemistry. If, I, I didn't have to take it, but every science, including my wife, friend of mine, have told me that that's the worst class for any science major. That's like when I thought I was taking a right and I took a left. And so when that happened, I think if I'm honest, and I'm thinking back now, I, I still thought I would go to law school. And so that was like my comfort safety zone because I was sort of like, well, I probably should go to grad school. That's a thing my family seems to value. But I'm just getting all of this advice, which seems to make sense, which is like live in the world for a little bit. And, yep. and I think I had realized that like, I really just like lived in this bubble of, you know, I'd had... I'd had lots of jobs, you know, I, I have a very proud heritage as a scooper at Ben and Jerry's and a shift leader and, you know, a, a bunch of different things like that. But I just felt like I wanted to go out and work a little bit before I did that. And then I have this vivid memory of working in that building. And I forget what floor I was on, but like, let's say it was somewhere between 30 and 45 mm -hmm. of being in my office at my desk some nights at crazy hours, you know, one or two in the morning, and then turning them off to go home and seeing the lights at Wachtell, which was a big, you know, prominent New York law firm still on like a building or two over. And I was like, that looks like much less fun than even what I'm doing. Yeah. So I think I realized there, I, I have a lot of joy and passion and curiosity. Like, why am I, you know, why am I going to law school? Even though I really value that education, I didn't get it, but yeah. both of my siblings did and many of my bosses, but I very quickly realized I did not want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I had a similar thing. I actually took the LSAT and then realized it's the same kind of thing. I was like, you know what? I don't, you know, I, I like the idea of the being a lawyer at first. Then I thought a JD MBA would be good. And, you know, the balance and having the background. And then I thought, you know, going to law school for just the background and having that knowledge of logical thinking, et cetera, would be great. And then I realized I was about to sign up to go for three years of college for something that I wasn't actually going to use. And so I ended up bowing out of it, but it's the same thing. Value it. A lot of my best friends are lawyers. It's Super valuable. Super valuable. Both of my siblings are non-practicing lawyers and now yeah. entrepreneurs. So yeah. it's, and my some of my best mentors and bosses were all lawyers. I think the flip side is for me, if I had gone into law, I think I have gone on a more and more risk-aphilic path. And I think studying, I probably would have ended up in corporate law, even though I love arguing and debating and should have been a litigator. <laughs> but I think sort of like, it, you know, I love the strategic parts of law, but if I spent all of my time writing up documents, looking for the one percent of things that could go wrong. I don't know that that would have been good for my psyche. <laughs>
Yeah, that's exactly what I came to. I, I love to debate and argue, but I don't know that I could run through a contract and think about every logical outcome and try to find that one little word that I need to change. I do it now as a business owner, but yeah, having to be responsible for that on a day-to-day basis doesn't sound too fun. Yeah, but we, we are grateful for our lawyers and our consumers. And if there are any founders listening to this, picking a terrific lawyer is probably the single most important thing you do early on because they yep. will teach you a lot of the business and less terrific lawyers can get you in in trouble and more terrific lawyers can really change your life. And they allow you to take calculated risk. Most lawyers are risk adverse because they know how it all ends up, but you can then at least educate yourself on the potential of how things could end up and then decide what you want to do. So I I agree. A good lawyer is really important. And so after two years at Morgan Stanley, what happened? Well, so I got myself in some trouble a couple times at Morgan Stanley. First for talking too much, which may not be a surprise (laughs) to you, Eric. (laughs) And then second, and probably most importantly, I worked on a lot of different kind of areas there from mostly telecom. That was like all the tech that was really being done between 1997 and 99. But everything from chemicals to healthcare to like, I even think I worked on a leverage buyout of a manure company. That was a highlight for me. Let your imagination run wild. And I just found this sort of like deep, innate curiosity for learning about the technology businesses. And it was kind of a niche little industry back then. You know, I mean, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people online, as opposed to billions today. Most people were on expensive machines, stuck to their desk. I remember going home and for the first time taking my telephone, my landline cord and plugging it into my computer and realizing that I could work from home in 1998 on the slowest connection ever. And so that was all really interesting to me. And so I got to work on a lot of telecom stuff with a guy named John Ehrenkrantz, who is one of my original mentors. And I've been talking to a lot of him recently. And anyway, he kind of opened up this whole new world for me. And he had come over from the investment banking side and he gave me a lot of room to run and he taught me and he mentored me. And honestly, I started like being so curious about what I was reading. I started cold calling companies, which was not a thing you did then. I mean, you sat behind the scenes and you work. I actually got in trouble for cold calling companies, which when I went to my next job is exactly what they wanted me to do. And I started spending more and more time with the people who worked across the floor for me, the venture capital folks, looking at, you know, software supporting telecom companies. And then I started reading things like electrical engineering for dummies. I mean, like literally stuff, (laughs) books like that. And then I ended up sort of volunteering myself to go to conferences. And I remember I wrote like a little write up on DSL and cable modems and what high speed (laughs) internet would mean for the world. So it was just clear to me that I did different level of energy and enthusiasm. And back then, you know, I was working crazy hours, you know, anywhere from 90 to, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I would say 120 hours a week, you know, I was going home to sleep for two or three hours. I mean, the things you can do in your twenties, which are not healthy. Um, And so it is really easy to, to like be unhappy when you're working like that. And it was very clear to me that I liked part of my job and part of the people I worked with much more than other parts of it. Mm -hmm. And so what did you end up doing about it? Like, did you end up getting fired for something or did you just decide to leave? (laughs) No, no, I didn't get fired. Um, You'd be surprised how many people that are at that your level now have been fired by from several jobs before getting there. (laughs) 
mean, I would say I was like in the toughest financial modeling group or one of them at Morgan Stanley. And I was pretty good, but I wasn't like my colleague, Peter Lee levels of good. And Peter texted me yesterday because I had this big news come out about upfront. And I will forever say that Peter got me through analyst years. You know, it was like at one in the morning when my model couldn't balance, Peter was my savior. No, I didn't get, I didn't get fired. I think what I, what I did honestly was I did all the stuff you were supposed to do as a, you know, 23 year old who was finishing their two year program. And I interviewed with all these private equity firms. And then I talked to two venture capital firms, Mm -hmm. the people across the hall from us, you know, Morgan Stanley's venture group, and then battery ventures. And Mm -hmm. I was really, really fortunate that one of the telecom companies that I, you know, modeled out and worked on was with one of the investors was the founder of battery ventures, which at the time was probably one of the top 10 firms in the world and really still is, you know, they're one of the consistently best returning funds around. And I really learned the business there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm lucky because John, this guy, John Aaron Krantz would invite me to sit in board meetings. And that was very rare. And he was like a mentor in a way very few others were at that time. And then Rick Frisbee was someone I just would talk to in the halls and this, that, and the other. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And I think I I ended up getting offers from both the venture capital group and battery. And I knew that if I wanted to do venture, I wanted to do it in a firm that was sort of independent. And then I had the opportunity to join them in either Boston or San Francisco. And for some reason, I chose Boston, even though I'm from LA and had always wanted to live in the Bay Area. But my philosophy was Battery was started in Boston. It was where Rick was and most of the other senior partners. And if I was going to go do it, one, I should do it with all the people who kind of started it and learn from them. And two, have an adventure. And Boston seemed like, it seemed like I would get to the Bay Area eventually, but this was sort of like one of those forks where maybe I could go live and learn another ecosystem. And it turns out I did, and I never learned how to drive in Boston. And there were scary, <laughs> scary moments there. Yeah, the one-way streets in Boston, for anyone that doesn't know, is it's it's impossible to find your way around. Like Google Maps helps now a little bit, but it's still like getting an Uber in Boston's a joke. No, I mean, not only that, I, I literally had a one, uh, like a 360 spin out on the pike. <laughs> I got standing ovations from the community in the South End when I finally figured out how to parallel park in snow after an hour of trying. <laughs> the big dig was going on, so the streets would change everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like it was like a real cultural odyssey for also an L.A. kid who grew up a huge Lakers, Dodgers, you know, yeah. Rangers fan, being in the Boston sports culture. So the whole thing was, was a really fascinating experience. Yeah, that's awesome. And so how long did you spend there? I spent three years there, like three very you know, hardworking, intense, fascinating years. I joined at the height of the bubble in 99. It imploded in 2000. We had 9-11 in 2001. I was applying to business school right as that was happening. So, <laughs> I mean, it was like three years where I got 10 years of experience. My first board roles, my just, all, I mean, everything happened in a very consolidated period where honestly, I, I just had some truly incredible mentors who were still like brothers to me. Nice. And so what happened next? How'd you end up leaving that? What made you decide to leave? That was really a personal, like I was, I hit kind of probably the downest moment of my life and career there. I think I was probably actually mildly depressed without totally acknowledging it to myself. So I didn't have family there. I didn't have many friends there, you know, New York straight out of school. You know, even if you're working like crazy, you, you know, you're working hard, you're playing hard. I mean, it was sort of the time of my life. Um, I was living on mustard and seltzer water and like, <laughs> over Chinese. I mean, like really, we would make fun of people who had food in their refrigerator, which is so ridiculous to think back to now. In Boston, I just, I really didn't have a life in a lot of ways. Like I did have a life and I had great 
you know, I had friends who were there, but I think I went so, because I didn't have built-in infrastructure, I went so deep mm-hmm. in my work. I worked less hours than I worked at Morgan Stanley, but I still probably was the one at the office at 10 PM. I got involved in, I think I, I you know, we were, we were supposed to source and I think I sourced like five or six investments that were made in my first year and battery would, you know, would take you to all the board meetings. And I was going to board meetings everywhere from Atlanta to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So it was a great experience, but I just, I think I was really needing more personal life. And so I decided I needed to take a break and take stock and figure, I mean, honestly, like, you know, stuff I don't usually talk about on podcasts, but I think it's, it's good to do it now. Yeah. I had a mild intervention, a real intervention by my parents who kind of forced me to go talk to someone. And mm-hmm. uh, I realized there was probably more to life than just working around the clock. And I loved battery, but I was not in love with the decisions I was making in my personal life. And mm-hmm. so that was one, I think too, I probably had a little bit of I mean, imposter syndrome or a lot of imposter syndrome. And I didn't learn, you know, really, I learned how to think in college. And I think I built my character, but all the skills I learned, the finance skills, et cetera, I learned on the job. This idea of like going and making sure, like I'm going for the right reasons, learning the trade, but also, you know, maybe the stamp of approval of uh, as one of the few women in the industry, that was a thing I desired to do. And then, you know, the final thing I'd say is, you know, cause I was, I was offered a promotion and I was offered to stay. And in many ways, I think my mentors, they were very split on whether I should go or stay. And they obviously ultimately wrote my recommendations and were very supportive, but there was one partner in the West coast office who took me out and said to me, he said, Kara, think about it this way. You have a long life. You're hard charging. You're going to come back to things. If you walk away from two years of grad school at this stage of your life. And I was you know, 26 when I entered, mm-hmm with two new lifelong friends, will it have been worth it? And if the answer to that is yes, then everything else is upside. And so I was like, you know what? The answer to that is definitely yes. And, you know, I mean, it changed my life in so many ways, including, you know, I met my husband at my roommate from business school's wedding. And I mean, that's the best thing that has happened to me in my life. And I think makes all the work stuff work and in balance with the things that make it work. So, you know, anyway, I, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm the person who is usually talking young people out of going to business school because I'm a self-hater <laughs> of my own background, but it was truly terrific. And, you know. It's kind of like the people that are super anti-undergrad too. You've got even Gary V's now kind of jumped on board with the you know, don't go to college and you've got Peter Thiel paying people not to go to college. Like, I think it's like everything else. It's not one size fits all. Like some people are going to get a lot out of undergrad. Some people aren't. Some people are going to get a lot of it at grad school. Some aren't. And it's figuring out your own path and jumping in, I think is totally fine. I have this philosophy that if you're, you know, that you can only get so much out of any one phase of your education and there's time for your more or less motivated socially to learn, et cetera. And you just have to allow yourself to be burned out and not do certain things in the right way. I probably got more out of, well, I don't know. I got a lot out of all the different educational environments I had in really different ways. But I would say I actually truly, I think, figured out what intrinsic motivation looks like in business school more than I learned a specific thing. Like I stamped in the grades. And it was the first time in my life I was somewhere we had a norm around could not disclose your grades. You were shamed <laughs> if you did. <laughs> and it really changed the way I worked 
And what you realize and what I now explain to my kids is that there are things I will kill myself to work on and nobody needs to look at it. No one needs to measure it. It's just a thing, you know, it's just a, it's called intrinsic motivation. And then there are right. other things where I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to truly understand macroeconomics. And I know you're a Nobel laureate, but I'm kind of totally cool getting what is the equivalent of a not very good grade on this final exam. And I'm, yeah. and I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and, and that balance is super important too. And as you said, like the social aspects too, like I, we've talked about some of the connections you made at Stanford, even our mutual connections, my, my wife's boss, you know, like the people that you're friends with, the network is so valuable too, that if, if it does make sense, like for me, I never went to get my MBA because I had a path that I was following that I never had a break in that I wanted to go do that, but it could have easily happened the other way. I even got to a point where I bought the GMAT book and started studying because I was that close to doing it. And for people that do it, I've watched friends, et cetera, that have like bought themselves a little time to think through what they want to do next and then come out. You can either take a break and get sort of a mediocre job while you try to figure out what you want to do, or you can go increase your education, increase your validity in the market and do something really interesting. Totally. And I think, look, like yeah, we, we both have to say up front that the consideration of taking on debt is a real one and yes. a very one, yep. one that everyone should think about. And it's, you know, it's one of the things I invest around is how do you remove the, the debt, the burden of student debt? I still have student debt from Stanford somewhere that I haven't paid off primarily because I'm administratively challenged, but also as a reminder, you know, for it's just a reminder, honestly, of the pride I have for like, I think I'm down to the last 10 or 20% and battery helped me pay off some of it, which was really kind, but it wasn't an insignificant sum of money. It was a lot of money back then. So that was something I, I really took seriously. But I sort of think aside from that, life's about relationships and bursts of energy and figuring out who the hell you are. Yep. And so like, if you think about it that way, I think things like, you know, the way you develop socially and the people you carry forward are the most important things that come out of all of these times. And so I, for what it's worth, I don't agree with Peter Thiel and Gary Vee. I agree that there's not a one size fits all. I agree that we need to change in society and not put the social proof we do in credentials and look at a different way of understanding skilling and the like. And, but I also think like, it's important to look at all of it as nuance and all of us as like full human beings in the context of like what we can afford. Totally agree. And yeah, I think that's an important note because yeah, there is definitely a disparity there where someone that can take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with any level of confidence. And it's even hurting our medical field now because oh. they aren't earning like they used to. So you get out of business school. Did you meet your husband in business school? Or you met him after through someone? No, I met him the day before I restarted at Battery in the West okay. and he was living in New York City at a wedding in Wyoming. It was very convenient, Eric. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to start. And so you went back to battery after going to GSB. Yeah, I would say I spent my summer at Microsoft. I really wanted to work for a big tech company and yep. I really wanted to operate. Um, uh -huh. And it turns out nobody actually wanted me to operate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's like I said to some of my friends, I always say, I say sometimes, and I love all the institutions I was a part of. I'm a huge joiner, but entrepreneurship sometimes is a disease at Stanford. You have to figure out if you're catching it for the right or wrong reasons. Like, do you no. have an earned insight and want to build something? Or do you just feel like you watch too many HBO episodes, right? It's, <laughs> it's an important one to answer. But anyway, I mean, there were two tech internships back in 2003, which is nuts, Microsoft and Intuit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was really excited to go work 
at Microsoft. It was the longest and most grueling interview process I've ever had. We can do a whole podcast on how Microsoft optimized their interview process. And it was like, it was like the GMAT. It was like real time. They'd figure out where you were strong or weak and whether you passed. And if you did, your schedule ended at 12. And if you kept passing, you would keep going. And at the end of the day, if you made it all the way, you'd make it to the head of the group they decided you were best suited for. So I wanted to go into product and they wanted me to go into corp dev and told me I should be thrilled about that. So <laughs> I listened to them. I went. Anyway, I spent my summer at Microsoft. I took a C++ class. I was the only business school student in it. Everybody was like, why are you here? And I said, well, I just want to know that I can do this coding stuff. And then I got there. I'm like, oh, it's the same logic as Excel. And then I realized I didn't want to be at Microsoft at the time. And I was honestly, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I still, you know, knew I loved the job at Battery. And I didn't think I, I didn't really have the risk profile or the earned insight to go start something. And so I went back to Battery and I was excited to go back to Battery. I think I, through that process, I realized I wasn't quite sure if I was an operator or an investor. And I, I still say I'm either well-suited to both or ill-suited to both. And I'm on a journey <laughs> to figuring that out. <laughs> nice. And so how long did you go back to Battery for? So I went back, turned out for two years, but really that was driven by, you know, finding the love of my life. And a guy who finally convinced me that being a hard charger in the exact market and firm I thought I wanted to be in was not not the most important thing. But Battery was really terrific. They let me move to New York. They, they supported me. I mean, I was a senior associate at the time and they supported me moving to New York for a year. You know, so I, I became very interested in the New York market circa 2004. And I'd go back and forth that first year. And then that second year, I fully moved with the true idea that if I would move back to the Bay Area with Jake, my now husband of, I don't know, 13 or 14 years, something like yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> and what I realized was a few things. One, actually, I realized I wanted to be back in LA, like mm -hmm. just getting out of the flow and out of the Bay Area for a second. And also seeing that there were really vibrant tech communities that had a different feel to the Boston community I had lived in was sort of eye-opening for me. And there was just a lot of innovation going on in New York at the time in tech. Yep. Cool. And then I got the first and well, the only headhunter call I've ever taken, <laughs> which was to go interview at IAC, which at the time was the parent company to a hundred different consumer brands and had just spun out Expedia and was the parent company to everything from Match to Ticketmaster to HSN to, you know, fledgling brands like Vimeo and, you know, original brands like Evite and City Search. So mm -hmm. I went to go interview with the vice chairman to run the M&A group for which wow. I had massive imposter syndrome. Right? I was a senior associate <laughs> at a venture capital firm. I was 29, I think. And maybe I was 30, but I was around that age. And I'm like, why did, well, you know, okay, I want to do this because I had heard, I see had this reputation for taking people into corporate for corporate and like the DNA of corporate and kind of deal doing and strategic strategy, et cetera. If you did that well for Diller, for Barry Diller, who ran the company, yep. you get an opportunity to move into other roles. And so I was just really intrigued because I'd always heard really good things about it from people in my surrounding life. So I went in an interview with the vice chairman and, you know, very quick story here. There was one class I took in business school that actually got me my job at IAC and at a level that I probably didn't deserve to be hired into. And that was a class taught by a guy named Jeffrey Pfeffer called Paths to Power. And I highly recommend his books. But the basic idea is your path to power is very rarely exactly what 
is role modeled through the traditional channels. And you should be on the lookout for things you're intrinsically motivated to do that you can take on and own that feel a bit like a pain to other people. There's yep. a bunch of great examples from Lyndon Johnson to, you know, Tina, I'm blanking on her name, but from to women, men, entrepreneurs, politicians. And so when I, I always wrote and journaled and started a, basically battery wanted someone to start a blog in 2005 yep. and no one wanted to do it. Everybody thought it was like important, but not that important. And so I started the blog and I blogged and the short version of the story is the blog was sent to the vice chairman and yeah. he was so surprised that someone had put all of their thoughts online at the time. And I was very detailed in my theses and what I was writing about. And I would write two or three times a week. And I went in and I had a 15 minute interview with the vice chairman, Barry Diller's chief deal doer of 20 years, a guy named Victor Kaufman, who is also a terrific mentor of mine now. And he asked me nothing hard. And then he said, okay, it was great to meet you. And I thought I had totally, you know, messed up the interview. And I asked him, I said, hey, I'm really excited about this. I don't go interview for things very often. I really like my job why didn't you ask me anything hard? Did I do really terribly? And he said, oh no, you did terrific. I read your whole blog thing someone sent me and I was really just interviewing you to make sure you weren't a sociopath before I introduced you to other people. <laughs> That's awesome. Sounds familiar. I'm a terrible interviewer. I, I know that I shake people up too because I'm just like, here's the job. Everything's good. And you cool? Okay, great. You're going to go talk to someone else now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you are a public CEO in the making then because he made very quick decisions and and almost everyone who's worked for him has gone on to do really interesting things. Awesome. And so how long were you at IAC then? Did you end up taking over M&A for IAC? Yeah. So I came in, I actually thought I was coming in to run the group and yeah. my boss also thought he was coming in to run the group, but it turns out he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> A guy named Jason Rapp, who you may have bumped into here in LA. Yeah. yeah why do I know Jason Rapp? Jason is, you know, a terrific yeah. investor, operator, CEO here in LA who's worked with yeah everyone from Jason Calcanis to all the venture funds. But Jason had like, I think he had run digital at the New York Times or something like that. And anyway, Jason was recruited in to do the senior version of the job I was recruited in to do. And we had this very awkward lunch where he thought he was interviewing me and I thought we were partners. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it. It was outside in Bryant Park. And anyway, it turned out he was, in fact, my boss in the beginning. And it was a very, I'd never really had a boss before because you were, you know, I for sure did it at Morgan Stanley, but at Battery, it was like very much jump ball. You go do things, you hunt, you bring them in, you work on them and you figure out the thing you want to work at. So anyway, I came into IC. I spent seven years there. I spent half the time in M&A under Jason initially, and then co-heading the group with Joey Levin, who now is the CEO of IAC and a terrific friend and collaborator who I love working with. Then I left and moved into an operating role. I moved back to LA when I was 19 weeks pregnant with my now 12-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. We moved in with my parents. That's a whole other story. We quickly <laughs> moved out. They are great parents, but you are not meant to live with your parents when you're pregnant. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it was really helpful adjustment from New York City where we didn't know how to like cook or do dry cleaning. But, you know, New York City was almost like living in an Uber world before Uber existed. And anyway, I mean, I moved in, I moved out here 
in the M&A role. So similarly, Victor Kaufman was very supportive of me moving out here, even though the entire corporate infrastructure was in New York and kind of with an eye to like, would there be a fit in one of our LA businesses to move into an operating role? Because that's really what I wanted to do. I always say at IAC, if you're in M&A, you're there, you know, 18 months or less, things probably didn't work out. If you're there more than three years, you probably are never going to leave. So the sweet spot is in between. And so about three years in, I moved into an operating role and I initially came in to operate City Search, the the last acquisition I had done. And I I was like a part of acquiring all sorts of crazy things then. I mean, it was really a masterclass in business from the greatest deal doers, you know, and the most creative financial engineers I think I'll ever, you know, I was privileged to work with, you know, Barry Diller and Victor Kaufman Mm -hmm. uh, and Joey and people like that. But I ended up, you know, buying Hawaiian hotels, virtual gaming companies. We spun out HSN and Ticketmaster at the time to call friends in real estate to ask them what a cap rate was. I mean, it was... incredible. And anyway, I left and I moved into a role where I managed City Search and then Urban Spoon, which was the last acquisition I had made and another brand called Insider Pages. Some were shrinking, some were growing rapidly. I mean, it was every kind of business you can imagine running. And then the final thing I did was City Search was a tricky business to run at the time. Urban Spoon grew like 30x during that time. City Search was on a huge decline. And I think literally the day I joined, it was the day Yelp surpassed them on traffic. Yep. Anyway, so there was R&D projects I I was working on to try to save City Search. One of them is is what turned into Tinder. So I recruited a guy named Sean Radin to help build a loyalty product for small business using social and location data to connect people and places. And, you know, Sean was this kind of terrific young founder that my now partner, Mark, and another one of my close friends in LA, Dana Settle, had backed in their last business. And, you know, in a hackathon, he came to me and said, I want to use all our backend technology instead of connecting people and places to connect people and people. And honestly, so it's a very crazy story that that we've never really fully, fully told. But, you know, that was when Tinder started and at a time when Match and corporate were incubating you know, everyone at IAC was trying to figure out what mobile dating would look like. And honestly, I just think a great, great example of how LA thinkers and creators can sometimes reinvent an industry from the most unexpected places. I don't know if you know this, but that's how I met my wife was on Tinder. Yeah, Yeah. seven years ago now, just about. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you have Sean. Thank you. you (laughs) Those of us who recruit in and like, you know, act as like the seed investor, we do it enough times and we get lucky. But, you know, Sean really, really was on a mission to do something big and different mm-hmm. in the hometown. And anyway, but that's awesome to hear. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was je- I was pregnant with my third daughter when it was taking off. So I wish I knew you back then, Eric, because I was like over the shoulder of friends trying to use it, but <laughs> never was an actual consumer of the product. It was great at the time. No idea. I haven't been on in a long time, but it, it was, it worked. And so at what point did you go from IAC to Upfront? Was that the transition? No. Actually, and Sean would come in and I, he was like quasi trying to recruit me. And then quasi like, why are you wasting your life at a big company? Go do something. And so in a lot of ways, I think I became riskophilic after I had my third child, honestly, after I had saved some money, mm-hmm. money to feel like I could not make money for a while. So weirdly enough, I left and started a company when I was six months pregnant with my third daughter. Wow. And so I was an entrepreneur. I raised money from my partner, Mark. So upfront mm-hmm. was my lead investor. And when I sold that company, and what was that company? Uh, the company was called Moonfry. It was a company I actually started with Soleil Moonfry. And it was very different than anything I had done. I did, most of my career had been in 
you know, enterprise software, cybersecurity, infrastructure when I was at Battery and then consumer at IAC. And I was sort of fatigued on ad models, which I shouldn't mm-hmm. say to you, Eric. <laughs> No, I get it. (laughs) I am unfatigued on them now, but I just wanted to honestly want to do something relevant and meaningful to my personal life. And so I tried to build out an e-commerce brand around how you take digital play and make people buy and convert into physical play. So like, how do you take your phone and make it feel like, you know, vegetables to the parents and ice cream to the kids? Yeah. So Soleil had this incredible community and we came together and started it. We ended up selling it pretty quickly to a toy company that knew the physical model side because it was pretty like we were pretty good at getting traffic and building early brand and working on Pinterest in a way that was pretty novel at the time. But, you know, I was like self-teaching myself the supply chain side and the business model side. When I sold that, I remember the phone call vividly. Mark called me and he said, it is time to come back to venture. And he was one of my first friends in LA. He had been a really different kind of board member than what I had experienced as a venture capitalist in a lot of ways, but the main way being, honestly, this is gonna sound cheesy, but he was really, really kind and empathetic when I was struggling the most. And (laughs) he would consistently know when to give me permission to fail and take pressure off. And I just had never seen that before. And I, I thought, you know, in a lot of ways, it was the empathy, I think, of having walked the walk and been a founder a couple times himself. And he was actually an upfront back founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Salesforce bought his second company, our partner Eve recruited him to join upfront. So I don't know if I was fatigued or I was excited, but it was the easiest career decision I ever made in my life. It just felt right. It felt like the right time in LA. It felt like the right firm. It felt like I had done the things I wanted to do on the operating side. And that's when I joined Upfront about a little over six years ago. Nice. And so now, obviously, did you come in as a partner immediately? I came in immediately as a partner. Nice. And have progressed to now be managing the infrastructure of it as well as being a partner, which is awesome. And so two last questions for you. What's next? You know, obviously you had big news yesterday. So I don't know if you're really looking to like the next step yet versus digesting what you just had. But yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you know, in addition to Upfront, I helped co-found the professional women's soccer team coming to LA, Angel City FC. So uh, we have a terrific president running that, Julie Ehrman, and we co-founded it with Natalie Portman. And we just have a terrific community of actors and actors activists and, you know, talented women and men in, in, in LA, and there'll be more news there soon. That's definitely an important kind of side project of mine, an important project that I care a lot about. And then I have, you know, I'm very involved in Time's Up where I'm on the board in All Raise, which is the organization that promotes female founders and funders. And now that I've gotten all my advertising in, I would say, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, Eric, you and I have the good fortune of really getting to know each other. Yeah. I think you get to a stage in your life and your career where you realize you want to have purpose and you want to strive kind of forever. And I feel the weight and burden of this opportunity along with the joy to be a part of running and building, you know, one of the, if not the biggest brand in LA tech venture. And so I think what's next is just continuing to learn the business. It's an apprenticeship job, Mark you know, is teaching me the job. And there's so many parts of the job that, you know, are behind the scenes in terms of like building relationships with limited partners and bringing in your own capital. And in addition to strategy and administrative topics, but I think the big, the big thing that's next is how do we build a firm in a city that has, I think the most to offer the world. I mean, I'm biased from a tech entrepreneurship and creativity perspective in a way that like builds on the best practices from the Bay Area, but is uniquely LA. And that is like the diversity of our partnership, women, 
people of color, tapping into different communities, supporting different kinds of ideas, you know, having a lot of pride in homegrown entrepreneurs, but also still investing nationally and internationally. So you bring that perspective in and kind of like building a firm that represents the world we all want to live in. Like we have all the values and the team to go do that. And so in a lot of ways, it's like, it is like building a company, you know, with a lot of humility for learning, continuing to learn the business. But I think it is working together as a team and a unit with my partners, Greg and Kobe and Aditi and Kevin and, you know, Eve to like figure out how we bring the best of all of our different backgrounds together with a lot of pride for doing it in this hometown in a way that maybe feels a little bit different and generates the returns that allows us to show that slightly different models are possible. Yep. That's awesome. And so last question, you've been around successful actresses. You mentioned partnering with Natalie Portman. You work with professional athletes. You work with tons of successful entrepreneurs. What do you think it takes for someone to go achieve their dreams, to really go for it? You know, you've hit your industry at the highest level. You're surrounded by people that do the same. What do you think it really takes or what would be advice to someone that really wants to succeed, not just in business, but in life? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's two really important books I'd suggest to everyone. They're written a bit for women, but a number of men have told me that they find them powerful. One is Glennon Doyle's Untamed. Yep. And the other is Abby Wambach's Wolfpack. Both have been really instructive to me. So one is, I just think it's a journey to figure out what like your true personal North Star is and to realize that the world in which we live in, we are role modeling ourselves off of people we see in the world. And it's the very first time that any one of us is living our life. And so you take those inputs to figure out what you want to do, but to really, really figure out what your North Star is. Why do you want to accomplish it? And I think it's a, for me, that took a very, very long time not to want to build somebody else's company or somebody else's firm or get an A, but like really figure out where I'm find flow and joy. I think the second thing is just looking for earned insights in the world. You know, I mean, I, I think if you're really smart and creative and talented and can sell, you can sometimes sell yourself on being and wanting to do something or other people wanting you to do it. And I really always ask myself, like, do I believe that? Cause somebody told me that and I'm supposed to repeat back why it's good or bad to take a SPAC right now. Or like, what do I actually think? And do I have an earned insight? And if I don't have an earned insight and I want it, like, how would I get it? And so I think we're, we're, we've all gotten really good at sounding smart and digesting information. But I think there's like a little bit of a quest to knowledge and what you really, truly believe in and why and help yourself understand if you're believing it for the right reasons or not. And then I think it's just try and fail. You know, I do think you need to take inputs from the world. I think there are a lot of talented people who kind of exist in jobs that don't make them totally happy or in startup ideas that aren't totally working, where you you are coached to be resilient, sometimes the best thing you can do is just fail and move on, you know? And sometimes you can think you want to be thing X and on the sixth time, you got to really ask yourself, why do I want to be thing X? And is it my ego that's moving me to X? Or is it like a true innate, you know, set of enough skills and passion to do it. And I, I, I think that that's, you know, taking inputs from the world and also like following your instinct, finding the right balance there and making decisions for yourself is, you know, is, is a really important part of figuring this all out. Well, couldn't have said it better. Thank you, Kara, for being on Hawk Talk. And I'm sure we will talk soon. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Eric, for being Hawk Talk and everything else <laughs> you do for this community. I am, I am really happy I could be here. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, 
we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.